0: Welcome to Gigamy, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it, build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot I I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. This week's guest is Ian Dench. Ian is one of the very few people who've had success as an artist. His band EMF went to number one in the US with Unbelievable, a song with one of the great guitar riffs. And as a writer, he's had hits with Beyoncé and The Prodigy and many others. But he's also gone inside a record company and worked as an A&R. It's an unusual career path. How did it start?
1: I think I have to mention just you know the moment I heard the Sex Pistols because I you know I, something went click and and I don't know that just the they, they just resonated with my teenage angst and passion and I don't know and just that feeling that you could do it yourself and. And I bought a guitar and started a punk band, and and I never looked back. I think you know, and I just loved playing music. I loved playing music with people. I loved the energy of it. I loved it. Just was a great way to express yourself as a teenager. And I was a sort of nerdy, boring teenager, and suddenly I was cool because I was in a band, and and you know, it just ticked all the boxes. And and I don't think in those early days I ever really dreamed that I could do it professionally, but I just loved it. It was. I just it was just a joy and and little by little the joy got more and more serious and more and more serious and until finally you know after you know t- two bands later and various other um you know art college and and studying classic guitar and stuff at age 25 I actually I finally sold some records and I suppose that's what qualifies as you as being in the industry I I, I guess and I you know I still attribute my my uh, participation in the music industry to to my passion for music and and that moment you know when when it was like wow you know and I can remember jumping around some disco like and just just like going crazy and loving it and, and I still love jumping around to like guitars and you know first band I just saw what, how people reacted to. To that music, and and I felt something about that connection. And then second band was with my friends from school, and we loved The Doors, and we started emulating that, and we sort of loved The Smiths, Neck and the Bunnymen, and we sort of did this sort of guitar band, like, uh, and which was a bit sort of like an indie guitar band, and we we got a record deal, but we didn't sell any records because I think we were trying to be like our record collection. We were trying to be cool and. And we didn't, you know, we couldn't, we didn't write pop because that was uncool and, and then, but, you know, as I said, I, we had two record deals in that band, that band was called Apple Mosaic and, you know, I was in Apple Mosaic for like eight years from age 17 to 25 and um, two record deals later, not, we didn't sell one record.
0: I just want to stop the conversation here because we're going to get to Ian's overnight success story. But just think about that line. He was in Apple Mosaic, the band before EMF, for eight years. And the band were good. They got signed twice, including by Virgin Records, but it just didn't work out for them. It would have been so easy for Ian, after eight years in that band and the disappointment of it not working, to give up. But lesson one from Ian, if you get knocked down, you've got to get back up again and keep going and try something different
1: and I kind of thought you know what am i doing wrong something's wrong here you know and i and i think i understood at that stage that you know pop isn't a dirty word pop pop is is connect is popular it's connecting to people and and instead of trying to sound like my record collection and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that that's cool i decided you know what we need is a sound you know it needs to be something that people connect to and it has to be you know contemporary and it and and, it, and i think that was the formula for emf and uh you know throw that in with a bunch of young guys that were you know good looking and and had a great energy and and you know with with all those years of writing songs under my belt already i just some i guess the sort of the formula seemed to click and i've always said that i think you know I, I watch people being, how do you put, cynical about about pop, or or and you know there's always that word selling out, and I, I, and I just I'm not sure I, I I buy into that because because it's about connection. You want to connect to people, and the more you, people you connect to, the better, really. And yeah, it's great when it's you you do it in an authentic way, and I but but authentic is is is, is is another great way to connect to people. And I think when you put all those together, that that's what pop pop music is. And, it, I, you know, I don't want to oversell the point, but, you know, watching my six-year-old daughter listen to I Am A Gummy Bear, you know, it's like six... They love it because it's just exciting and that's what relates to them at the time. And, you know, and my son listening to XXXTentathion is it, as relevant to him and his age as, as Gummy Bear is to my six-year-old at, at her age. And... And and as authentic, so so you know, it, it's about horses for courses in some way. Got me going, and, and I, the first thing I did was you know work out pretty vacant and, and on my guitar, and I cop and copy it. And but in somehow in that journey, you, you have to become something interesting yourself. Otherwise, you might as well just do covers for the rest of your life, and that's great as well. You know, great to, to do to play cover versions of songs, do them live. That's wonderful, but. You know, you've got to try and sort of find your own voice amongst all those things and put all those influences together in a in a new idiosyncratic way that's that's completely personal to you and all those funny things putting them together. And if you're too good at copying, it just sounds like a copy. And I just love those artists who who sort of can't help being themselves, you know, it's like whatever they do, they just sound like themselves and they think they're they're channeling these things that they love and listen to, but somehow they, they just can't help being themselves and uh, because they've got a very particular voice or a way of saying things or a way of playing guitar or, or putting a production together. And that's when you get a new voice and, and uh, that's when it is really authentic and, and, and not just a copy. And,
0: The conclusion Ian drew after his time in Apple Mosaic was that he needed to concentrate more on connecting with and moving his audience. He formed a new band called EMF with some local mates.
1: I mean, it was textbook overnight success. Autumn 89, we got together, wrote a few songs. We were signed by the spring. Unbelievable came out by the winter and we were number one in America the following summer. I mean, it's like you know and after having struggled away for so many years it was just like oh my gosh how did that happen it was it was crazy and and uh and wonderful for a 25 year old and and his younger friends i think perhaps the younger members of the band felt perhaps it was like oh my gosh this is this is easy hey we just play some music and we're top of the charts but because i'd struggled i I, I think I had an awareness of the precariousness of it, and so I worked really, really hard. I got quite ill because I worked so hard, and you know I was in the studio, as you know, trying to maximize it, and then writing the next bunch of songs, and then we were on tour all the time. And because I thought, oh, I have to make the most of this. I've seen what it's like when you're struggling away, and you know, strangely, it was just as hard. We got something right with the first record. The second record was great, but it didn't have the sex success of the first and the third record just just sort of sank without a trace and you know I, and I I didn't I still didn't really understand how how to be successful and it troubled me I think because I sort of thought oh yeah you know it's great I totally understand this we've done this great album Schubert Dipp and written this hit song unbelievable and I know what I'm doing and we're going to be superstars and I sort of hoped that's how it was. And then it became clear, even from the fact that I Believe, which was meant to be the big single, didn't do as well as Unbelievable. And then the subsequent ones, they did OK. You know, we had, we were on top of the pops like seven times, and the subsequent singles, I Believe, and Children, uh, and Lies, all they all did OK. And then the second record came out, and they're here and it's you, we were, we're on, still on top of the Pops, but we weren't selling so many and obviously weren't connecting like the first record did. And I guess we were trying to redefine ourselves as some sort of cool indie band because you know, there was a certain uncomfortableness with, with being a pop band because we'd had sort of a bit of backlash in the press and so we decided to be a cool indie band. And then, But then we weren't as cool as we hoped we would be and I don't know, it's... I guess we just sort of got lost in the stylistic maelstrom and, uh, and uh, you know it shows how, how difficult it is to try and do it in a premeditated way. I think we kept on playing music we loved and still do. And I think that's why we still make music together. And James, the singer and I, we write songs together. We get on really well. He's like my favorite person to, to write with in the world, him and Amanda and Amanda goes to. I write with a lot. Um, and I, I think, I suppose we were always a little bit... Earlier on, we were a bit frustrated by the fact that it's like we didn't seem to be able to keep writing Unbelievables. But now it's just like we are so grateful that we got one and, and just love making music. Again, it's back to the joy. The joy is what's important, really. And, you know, the success comes when the stars align, and that's not something that you can necessarily control.
0: It's important to enjoy the process of making and playing music, because people can spot if you don't. It's important to make music you love and keep plugging away. Sometimes things don't happen, like the second and third EMF album, but sometimes things do. Ian found himself veering into songwriting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was just a sort of fortuitous series of events, really. After EMF split, I, I met Amanda Ghost and we started working on her as a solo artist. She got signed and we made a record for her and we were working on her second record when she wrote You're Beautiful with James Blunt. Uh, and that was just a... You know, she always says that that was just a coincidence. She happened to be in Los Angeles and he'd been working with a friend of ours and said, you know, let's write a song together. And so they wrote that. And when that was a big hit, she got a call from... Uh, Tata Smith, if, and saying, "Oh, you know, can you write write a song for Beyonce?" And she she was like, "This guy called me. I don't know who he is, and you know, I wanted to have a meet about this, and and so let's go and see him." And off we went to um, the Def Jam offices in in New York because we happened to be there. And, and uh, he, he's like, uh, "Oh, yeah, there's a couple of people I want you to meet." And in walked Beyonce and Jay Z and we were like whoa and they were like you know we want you to write a, write a song and and funnily enough amanda was like well look i'm a i don't write songs for other people you know the you're beautiful was just a was a one-off you know I, maybe and i was going amanda be quiet be quiet you know i was I was thinking you know just say yes and uh she was like oh well maybe we could get to know you and like because you know for us at that time a writing a song was a sort of long process. You'd start with something and you'd change and you'd try it this way and try it that way. But Beyonce turned around and said, I'm sorry, but I just don't have time for that. You know, we've got this great backing track. Um, a couple of people have tried to write on it with, with, with no success and we'd like you to have a go. And Amanda was, said, well, OK. Um, and she was like, well, the studio's book tonight. See what you come up with. And we were like, what? And so we went back to the um, hotel room and wrote Beautiful liar, uh, just on, you know, on my guitar, and because I'd had that Spanish sort of background, and Amanda herself is half Spanish, so there was this sort of you know sort of Hispanic groove um, and and we just came out with it, to, went to the studio, and they loved it, and bang, it, it, there it was, uh, We had a hit record, and it just seemed so easy. And and then suddenly we were invited back again to work with Stargate, who'd done the backing track, and uh, and wrote a bunch of songs and had some hit records, and suddenly became songwriters uh, for hire, I guess. And I guess all those years of writing songs uh, had given us the sort of skills to to do it to some extent. And so we rattled off a few hit records. We had did Tattoo for Jordan Sparks and Red. Daniel Merriweather and and um, Gypsy for Shakira and uh, and then we went on and worked with Beyonce on the I Am Sasha Fierce album and wrote uh, Ava Maria and Satellites and Disappear for Her and did the um, Once in a Lifetime song that got the Golden Globe nomination and just had this wonderful couple of years 2008 and 2009 writing writing lots of songs when we, we wrote Beautiful Liar and started being songwriters for hire, we'd, we'd start writing a song every day and this was, it was just a whole new thing. And, and I can remember being in the studio with Stargate and um, meeting Neo and watching him work and there was this amazing... You know, he'd say, please play the track. So he'd play, they'd play the track one more time, third time, and then he'd write down on a sheet of paper, walk into the vocal booth and sing the whole song. And we were like, this is incredible. You, you didn't spend weeks on a set of lyrics. It's just like you... You felt what it was, and you came out with it, and this—it was just this new thing for us, and it was, but incredible. And and it's like you've got to go with that feeling, and you've got to you've got to articulate it in the moment, and it's got this freshness to it, and and so we just started writing, you know, song every day, song every day, and we met some people who were writing three songs a day, some of those some of those top liners and writers, you know, it's just about an idea and a feeling, and you articulate it, and out it comes, and you don't pour over it forever, and. Um, and then, so we must have written, like, it, in fact, I've got a list somewhere. I looked at it, and there's, there's like a hundred songs in in 2008 and 2009. All of a sudden, we they were just banging them out, banging them out. And I don't know whether, yeah, and we hit we we hit it right. It has some some of those songs, like Tattoo, had that freshness that they were done in the day, and and but some of them were just they're not developed enough. And you could probably go back and and develop them. And and, and these days, I'm not quite so like just rattle it out um i like to work on something a little bit and see it through and when when i work with james and and for the emf stuff we we work on it a little longer and it gives it another dimension sometimes and, and and more layers i think with emf you know i think james and i are more prepared to talk about ourselves and our life and and whereas if i'm working with other people i want to know about their life you know i I think it's better when it comes from them and I try and help them articulate it in a way that gets to something that somebody else might understand. Because that's, I suppose that's always, it goes, comes back to that thing about connection. You, know, you want to try and find a way that's both personal and universal um, so that it feels authentic that somebody's talking about their life and their experience in a way that everybody could relate to and you know that's the sort of holy grail really and and that is my constant struggle I'm probably most effective when I write for myself because I when I feel it you know I sort of I go into that you know for years I stood in my bedroom in front of the mirror playing my guitar imagining myself you know in front of millions of people and and it develops a sort of thing where you you want to feel an emotion that's going to connect to those people and when i and i still access that person when i write and i want to feel that moment when the sort of music combines with a word to to go ping with into your psyche or your soul or something and 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 just just connect and i do that for myself and and whoever i'm writing with yeah there's always stylistic concerns and i'm not a great producer i'd say and i love working with people who have just got the skills to 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 make records sound great but what i love is the words and how they and how they work with the music to 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 speak some truth and i and it's only when i feel the truth that that i think it's successful in some way and and you know fingers crossed uh it it's, it's successful for other people and thankfully a, a couple of times it has been i mean i wrote millions of songs and most of them you know don't come to much but occasionally uh, you know it's it's worked and so i guess i guess there's something about it that's right occasionally
0: so how does the collaborative songwriting process work for him
1: well uh, yeah i mean i suppose what what happens often is that uh you know you you go into studio there's usually a producer and a and a top-liner who would sing the melody and, and often write the lyrics. Because uh, you call the, the melody the top-line because it's the sort of way... It, it's what leads the song um, on top of the music. You know, you work with a great producer and they might already have a track, or you could start with some piano chords or guitar chords. Um, often people start with tracks because... It, it's great to start with a beat that sounds like it might be on the radio, and it sort of puts you in the right territory. and And then, more often than not, somebody will sing a melody. The melody might be a word, or or it might just be a melody, and you've got to fit some words in. and And if somebody sings, you know, la, you know, you've got to find some words that fits that sort of phonetically. and And it's a funny. Um, it's a funny skill because you you sort of have to examine it on several levels and yes there's sort of there's the rhythmic elements and there's the phonetic elements of of writing the top line of writing the melody uh, and there are f- styles in in the rhythm you know you listen to some some top liners and the way they use uh rhythms is is there's a, a real big fashion for using like triplets and and being lazy on the beat and and rap has become such a huge thing you know people people who can who can rap it's a thing too and not that I work with rappers generally you know I work with people who sing songs because I, I come from that tradition I don't really come from the sort of more modern R&B rap tradition and but I guess we try and channel the the fashion uh, for uh, um, melodies and rhythms and, and and words and you know there's the styles for certain words certain words work and and feel like they're relevant but I still think that what you know the greatest skill is to say something that people will relate to and and, and that's, that's probably as relevant for somebody like John Dowland in the Fifteenth century you know as it is to anybody today you know you it's sort of word smithing is 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 a great skill and and I think perhaps why I still manage to contribute something because I can't sing like a contemporary top liner, and i you know I don't have the rhythm or the or 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 and I don't know what the cool words are necessarily but but I know what a story is, and I know what a how to say something to tell a story through a song and get to a point where you can go bang and hit that, that, that sort of um, completion of a thought um, in a chorus or a tag that, that sort of brings you home and, and imparts some emotion. And, and I, think, I still think that's the, the most important thing.
0: What does a typical day look like? Does he have a regular routine and place of work?
1: I do. I have a place. I have a a writing room in Finsbury Park and I love dropping my daughter at school and getting there about 10am in the morning and working on a couple of things and then maybe um, somebody will come over. I've been working with a great young singer called Skye Houston and she is amazing and she will show up late morning and we'll have a quick chat and a cup of tea and then, you know, you just she'll get on the piano and sing something and she might have a lyrical idea or I might and and off we go Um, uh, sometimes we've been writing recently with another top liner called Scott McFarnan, who's super talented and so the three of us will sit there either with the guitar or the piano and and talk about lyrics and spend ages talking about lyrics and how to say something and and Sky has got an amazing voice and so has Scott and we just so we just sort of sit there and piece it together and uh, and we have a break for lunch and wander to Stroud Green Road and go to the Tesco's and get a sandwich maybe and come back and have another cup of tea and work through to the afternoon and, you know, usually wrap up about 6 p.m. And uh, and we have a song. And it's strange because you get completely lost in it. And so we send it off to, to um, in this case, Amanda, because she's been uh, A&Ring this, and, and you sort of get a... A message back the day afterwards and you know often it's silence because that which means amanda didn't like it and then occasionally you get you get a message from sky going amanda loves it she responded and and you know you start to see what the song is occasionally i go to my good friend and collaborator um ed butler and he has an act called bilon and he does a lot of house music and and has got a great feel for sound, for contemporary sound, and how to put a contemporary record together. And we, we work on it, and we, 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 that's when we m- might try it this way or that way, and try some beats on it, or some keyboard sounds, and layer the vocals up.
0: How does somebody up and coming like Sky find somebody like Ian to develop with?
1: Well, she, I think she found Amanda first, because Amanda's... You know, Amanda's an amazing businesswoman. She's always got her ear to the ground and people bring things to her. And then Amanda said to me, oh, I found this great singer. Um, I'd love you to come and write. And so Amanda and myself wrote a song with her and, uh, you know, felt like she had potential. And then Amanda being a, a, a busy bee, uh, you know, she's she's off doing lots of different things. And so Sky and I wrote together a lot and Sky has been working with lots of different people, very proactive you know, trying different things, different writers, different styles, and and so Amanda, Sky and myself write together sometimes, and and just, uh, and I think that's often the case with a young artist with a great voice, they, they need to find what a record's going to sound like, um, and it comes back to that thing about record collections, you know, and it's funny because Amanda was talking to me the other day about her first record and how you know, we listened back to it, and how she had tried to sound like her record collection and there was something there was a song that sounded a bit like the prodigy because the prodigy had just come out then and they were amazing and but the songs that still sound great are the ones that have a message and there's a few songs on there that that didn't really fit into any sort of style at the time uh, but the message was great and and so you know I think we we work on that between those those areas of you know what not getting lost in the fashion of the time and what a, what a beat sounds like and you know how a song has still got to try and say something that transcends all that. She's not she's not signed to a record label. She has a publishing deal, and I think people are already sniffing around and, and taking some interest. But I you know we keep advising her not to sign a record label yet. She's got to figure out what she's going to be write those songs and and get a good handle on who she's going to be because record labels you certainly back in the day record labels would sign things with potential and not necessarily be able to realize it um often because you know they were signed too early or you know or they they signed somebody that sounded great but didn't really ha- have an angle on what it was going to sound like and so I, I always think that artists need to work that out for themselves because it's better if they do it. If it, you know, I've seen people who get you know forced into something and then they're not comfortable with that and and it and it doesn't go well. I've seen people who do things who are not necessarily comfortable with and and uh, have great success as well. And and uh, <laughs> I'm not sure even that's a great thing. And I, st- I always recommend that an artist works it out themselves. And and these days record companies. Are, don't sign things at at an early stage it's because the the way that sort of online algorithms work you could you can see when something's going to take off so i think the record companies leave the development to producers and djs and managers and then just keep an eye on on spotify or or any of the streaming services and when something begins to connect they get there and write a check and and it's, it's just a different model, but uh, and in some ways a better better model because people get to work things out for themselves. But also, it's a shame because there's less sort of less money uh, for development, and and so you're gonna, you've got to find some way through it if you're un, a young artist, and and you've got to sort of do your own s- social media presence and try and get those numbers up, and and try and pay for productions, and and. Write with great writers and producers, and sort of do all that yourself without the support of a record company, and um, so it's sort of different times.
0: What does he look for in a young musician?
1: Sky is a, an incredibly positive person. She like she walks into a session and rolls with it. You know, it's never like, oh, I'm not feeling that. That's not what I want to do. She's like, yep, yeah, let's go with it, and she runs with everything, and she just. And that's how she is as a person. And she, she works like stink. She's at um, she's at university and she's doing this. It's like she works really, really hard. And so she's just got this amazing attitude. So I think I think that sort of attitude is what gets you places. And you you can get to work with anybody. Like Amanda did. I mean Amanda's a similar person, you know. She when when I first met her, we just met through a friend and she's like, let's write a song. You know, she just came to me, and at the time, you know, I just come out of this big hit band, and, she, and who was she? But she just, she was just positive, and when she came in, she she sang, and she had a great voice, and she had lots of ideas, and and uh, it was like, great, let's go. So I think if if you've got that sort of positive energy, I I think it's it's not difficult to make things happen. It's a strange thing because I don't. I'm not. I don't think I necessarily was that person. You know, I was, I was a shy young man, and but even then, I just, you know, I formed a band with my mates. You know, you just, you just got to make it happen, and then you just try and get gigs, and off you go and you play places, and then eventually somebody sees you. So, you, know, you just got to keep it moving forward, and you know, somebody will find you, and and you'll find somebody because you have to remember. And I this is what I experienced when I became an A and R person is that, you know. All those people out there—the the producers, the managers, the, the record companies—you know—they're looking for you. They want to find the, the next Adele, you know, the, the next Dave, the next you know, the next big big thing, the next Billie Eilish. You know, they're, so they're they're desperate for young people who are um, who are doing interesting things, and just put yourself out there, and and someone's going to find you. Do good work, get out there and post your stuff and work, collaborate. Collaborate Collaboration is the greatest thing. It's like, meet people, try things.
0: Ian is not only a successful artist and songwriter, but he's also stepped to the other side of the line, working inside a major record company.
1: Oh, (laughs) um, well, again, that's, you know, that one's down to Amanda because 2008, when we'd written all those um, songs you know we'd spend a lot of time in in new york and i think amanda is, she's an amazing businesswoman she's she's making stuff happen she's meeting people uh, and i think it became to um some of the record companies notice that of what a what a um force of nature she was and she got a couple of offers from record labels to go to to go and work at them and so one of them was rob stringer at at sony and and he offered the, her the presidency of epic based on her you know, success in with the songwriting and and just her obvious energy and and organisational skills and um so off, you know she gets gets to be the president of Epic Records and she said to me, you know, I want you to come and work in A and R and I was like, but but I've never done A and R before and she says that's not true. You've A and R'd my record for all these years and because I guess I always had that thing about how to make something work. You know, trying to trying to make a song message and that style go together to make something authentic and we sort of had the discussion and, and I was like well great you know I, I let's give it a go and so off we went to New York and and there I was in my office with a view of a central park in that huge building on Madison Avenue they used to call it the Death Star didn't they when from, from to, to Tommy Mottola's days I think and and it was a pretty impressive building but you know, I got in the office and people started coming to see me. I was the record company. And and I'd see that thing where, you know, there'd be a big hit record and everybody would come and, come and mimic it. Um, and it's it, again, it's that thing going back to being a record collection. People would come in and play songs that sounded a bit like, you know, what had been successful a couple of months before. And it just felt like it was a copy, whereas... Occasionally, somebody would come in with something with some sort of original voice, and you'd just be like, "Oh, that's music. That's real. That makes you feel something. That's that's interesting." And and maybe I was too musical to be an A and R person. Maybe I maybe I should have been more more worried about the the sound. But but I always felt that you know if it made me feel something, it's going to make other people feel something. And and I made a great record with a singer called Alice Smith. It was just incredible it was, you know Alice was just such a great singer, and due to circumstances beyond my control, sadly, the record never came out and oh, the whole politics of a record company is a is a whole other thing, but it was it was a great to see how a song is what and a lyric an emotion and a lyric is what connects to people and and so i've always thought that. That's what's important, and that's how to impress an A&R person, and, or, or or an artist, or or a member of the public. And um, you know, sorry, I I, I keep saying it. I say I feel like I'm saying the same thing again and again and again. Uh, you know, a, a great a great lyric and a and a melody, as, as Adele attests, you know, and, and Billie yeah. Eilish as well. I mean, I think, you know, still the great, the biggest selling artist, T- Taylor Swift, and you know, it's like they're still. Writing a great song with a great melody. I love the whole stylistic aspect of it. You know, it's great. You know, hearing you know beats and the, you know new sounds. And I and I and you know that that whole, I love that whole British drill and grime thing. And you know, and those, the way those records sound. But I still think it's a, it's the way that those records are telling a story about the streets that. Gives them the relevance and makes them mean something for now. And the Clash, I mean, they—you know—that they, Joe Strong was amazing at, you know, at a, with, at a message. You know, he, he had all that political involvement as well, and that's that wonderful meeting between those things.
0: How does somebody so experienced handle their own publishing?
1: I'm published by Cobalt. I, I, I love Cobalt. Sas Metcalf, who, who runs Cobalt signed EMF to Warner Chapel years and years and years ago, and. And she was wonderful with us then and, and uh, she's wonderful with me now. And I don't know, that's something you, you must know, David. It's like you make relationships in this business and you, know, and you find good people and, and continue to do good work with them, hopefully. And, um, publishing. Uh, I love publishers because, in a sense, publishers are doing what record companies used to do. So you know, a publisher may pick up things and help fund an artist working their way towards a sound. Publishers, you know, have always been a bit more hands-on, and you probably know this better than I. I mean, are are publishers more still inclined to invest in something if they see see some potential in it, perhaps more so than a record company? It's sort of like seed capital, isn't it? The publishers do do the seed capital to to start it off, and but also to do the most important thing, which is like work out, you know, what are the songs and what's the sound, and then the rest of it will follow.
0: What about a manager? Does Ian have one?
1: No, I don't these days. You know, we were managed during the 2008 when we were writing a lot of songs by Jay-Z's team, by Tata Smith and, and Jay Brown, and that was wonderful because they put us in some great situations. And But, I don't know, my whole career, I think I feel like I've done my best work when I've done things I want to do because I want to do them. And And it's funny because I think Amanda became very troubled in at the end of that songwriting spree that we were just churning the songs out that they that they stopped meaning something that you know you walk into a situation and just come out with something because you have to come out with something and uh, and that is a danger and I know it, t- uh, it troubles her terribly to this day that you know when she's got to work with somebody and make something happen that it doesn't necessarily happen because she feels it you know and, and Amanda's all about it she's got to feel it and and I think we went through a similar thing and I, I you know my my conclusion from from all that was that I'm just going to get back to grassroots and try this and try that and work with some people that I like and 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 enjoy it and see what happens and you know I'm incredibly fortunate because I you know I've made enough money to keep me going and I can try you know I can spend a little time trying out some stuff and 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 I love it, and I love what I do, and I think that's what's important.
0: How far involved in the business side of things does he get?
1: It's great to get involved and stick up for yourself and represent yourself in some ways. And again, I'd say that to any young artist, be aware of your career, take responsibility for yourself. Because even if somebody else does it, if you've done it for a while, you, you're... You know you understand the outs of it, and uh, hopefully you give your poor manager a break sometimes and because it's because it's hard you know trying to swing deals all the time and convince people to do stuff. running a diary is easy. I mean the whole social media thing these days that's that's uh, something that I didn't have to deal with at the time, so I feel for some of them because I, I know a lot of artists they they love making music, but they don 't necessarily like posting stuff online, and it's become such a, such a part of it those contracts used to frighten the hell out of me and. And, you know, and of course we get a lawyer and pay a lot of money for a lawyer to look at it. But there's a certain point when I decided, OK, I'm going to try reading a contract. And when you actually read a contract, you have to sit there and concentrate. But it kind of makes sense. And and it's a wonderful thing to read through it and understand how it's going to affect you. Because I've signed some bad contracts in my time and and I wish I'd read them and, and sort of understood it and had this presence of mind to say, no, no, I don't want to sign that and... Um, so I'd strongly recommend everybody to read your contracts and you'll understand what, what they mean and 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 what how they're going to affect you. And
0: What's the best piece of advice he could give anybody coming into the industry right now?
1: Collaboration. That's, I think that's the first thing. Get out there and meet people and try this and try that. My son is 17 and he's just decided he wants to make beats and... You know, he sits in his bedroom pouring over beats and making some great stuff. And then he he played one the other day and I was like, oh, that's amazing, what did you do? And he said, oh, me and a friend at school just started doing something together and you can see how this interplay has helped him. You know, they they become a perspective for each other and and also with songwriting. You know, Sky, she'd written some songs herself and then she went off and worked with, um, with other singers and oh my gosh, she's come on. It's incredible how she's... How she's developed as a songwriter, and you know making some mistakes and just getting used to it, so I think first thing collaboration occasionally i'm mentor for the songwriting academy, and I think the greatest thing in those in those situations is is when when people are put together um we did a camp and there's twen twenty people came on the camp, and you put together together in groups of of threes and fours and and having to work through stuff. And they all came out of it saying, "Oh my gosh, I've done my best work." And some sometimes there's fights, and some, sometimes people don't get on. But it's all sort of part of the part of the education. And I think there's no such thing as a bad idea. Get into those situations and you know run with everything. Anybody's like, "Yeah, that's great. Let's let's do that. Let's do you know just because you want to get a situation where everyone is everyone's trying stuff and. Uh, and, and is happy to collaborate and 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 feel that they're listened to and there are people who have a great personal vision and can write songs themselves and I think that's wonderful. But I, and even for them, I think it's great to be able to be able to listen and it puts you in a different headspace when when you listen. It it it, it helps you be like objective
0: because
1: I think you know. The creative process is a very sort of internal thing in a way, and you know it's about how your thoughts turn into feelings, and and so you can get very lost in your own little world. But when you work with somebody else, that you sort of see yourself reflected back, and much as when somebody listens to your music, and so it's a wonderful thing to be able to stand outside yourself and hear what it is and let yourself go let your you know let your ego go really and and stand back and think oh actually i like that and i don't like that and and then you can go back into yourself w- with some some tools to affect what you're doing and ho- hopefully improve it it's tricky and now it's what a ho- it's it's one of the most nerve-wracking things is to play a song to somebody else and and to, to see what they say But that's why developing a skill where you are able to do that to yourself is a wonderful thing, Or, or having collaborators that you trust who are going to be able to do that for you as well.
0: So that's it for this episode. Thank you to Ian Dench for taking the time to talk to me. Hope you found it useful and enjoyed it. Get in touch if you've got any questions. See you soon. Bye. thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is gigom dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.